Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And as a heads up to our listeners, we won't be releasing an episode next week, the week of December 25th. With us today is James McQuivey, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Forrester, to discuss the possible negative impact of a motion that's happening in the marketplace now. Welcome, James. So glad to be with you. So, James, it's noisy out there. You have out-of-control multitasking, endless choices of products, nonstop ads, and at some point in time, it feels like this is coming home to roost, that there's there's a pendulum is now swinging back to a different place. Is that is that a good backdrop to this? I think that's a fair thing to conclude. I mean, we can look around at certain trends that are occurring in our society, you know, people emphasizing simplicity or trying to reduce the clutter in their lives. Uh, we're hearing that millennials are preferring to buy experiences instead of objects so, so that they're not as cluttered. There are these little bits of our culture that are moving in the direction away from all of this barrage that you're describing of, of offers and devices and apps even as well. The, the question is, and I get this posed to me a lot, does this actually mean that people are going to suddenly turn off their phones and walk away from this digital lifestyle that they've created? No, I don't yeah. think they will. They're just going to handle it differently. Meaning yeah. they won't go off the grid. They're not going to suddenly turn away. I mean, there always is someone who does. I sure. mean, that's happened to television in the 70s where families said, no more TV. You know, but There will always be a few people who do that. Uh, but by and large, we have it too good. And we like what we get out of it. We're just not very good at filtering it ourselves. Yeah, it's a funny irony where we, we argue the empowered customer, but the empowered customer's drowning in a cacophony of ads and emotions and other things. So it's not really in control of those experiences. It's just, to your point, it's in a hyper-filter mode. Yeah, they have more options. More options to filter means more work. Means, yeah, you can make new software tools that help them do that, and we are seeing that. I mean, that's been... Uh, a, a really common refrain from the early days of the web to then the first days of mobile to now we're seeing in these different voice interfaces and other things where we're saying, oh, we're going to simplify it for you. You, know, you don't have to take your phone out anymore. You can just ask Alexa to do that for you. And that feels like simplification. But even at the same time, we're adding a thousand more things you can do in this simpler way. Uh, and so it's, it's hard to argue that we are net more simplified now than we were a year ago, two years ago. Yeah, today people, consumers, have to navigate the technology. So if you want to travel from point A to point B, you're opening like potentially three to four apps to coordinate that trip. So we're living in a tech world that has advanced a lot, sure, but it still fragments the experiences and assumes the consumer is the orchestrator of the whole thing. And that really needs to be resolved. It really does. And it's pushing us towards this moment of decision. Do consumers say, slow down, which I contend they don't, uh, or do they simply say, I want to do all these exponentially more interesting things, but with uh, significantly less effort required on my part? And, you know, if you were, I don't know, Emperor Augustine or someone, you just had a whole bunch of minions do all that for you. Well, the beauty of digital is that we can create digital minions. We can scale the ability for other entities, be they software in this case, instead of human beings, to do all that work for you. And, and that's essentially the cusp, the edge of what we're about to enter as a society with all of our digital tools. This was once described as millennial behavior, and there's an emerging line of thought that Generation Z 
who's not interested in ownership, not interested in the same kinds of things, but interested in more graceful experiences, they're the ones causing it. But that's actually not really the story. That's a really interesting point. It's they're not causing it because, frankly, their lives aren't this complex yet. They, they don't have this much to react to. Uh, they're inheriting what we've created for them, which is a world in which magical things seem to happen all the time. Uh, they're just good at the magic. They're comfortable using their thumbs. It's more of a competency question. It, it really yeah. is. It really is. They, because these behaviors are native to them, they don't feel as taxed and exhausted by them as we do. Um, but as their lives get more complicated, they will want simplification as well. You know, you look around at what really, really appeals to someone in their 40s or 50s about simplification is going to be different than what appeals to today's 20-year-old or today's 10-year-old when they decide they need simplification. They're just going to say, Alexa, simplify my life. Right. And they won't have to specify which things they want simplified because some kind of machine intelligence behind Alexa will do all the heavy lifting to analyze all your past behavior, figure out exactly which things you intended every time you did something or it, or started to do something. It's This is one of the big challenges that we have right now with these technologies is that they are still in command and response mode. Yep. We have to command, they have to respond. And we have to know the commands. We have to memorize the commands and know the parameters that there we're attacking. There are specific on. commands depending on what you're using too, and, right? And then not to mention what happens when the command is misunderstood and you have to go back to the beginning. And um, all, all of that command and respond, that's the first thing to go uh, for this dramatic simplification. And uh, it becomes, hmm, if I'm Alexa and I'm watching you closely – what will happen is that Alexa will start to realize that, hmm, I can tell by what you're doing right now that you are about to ask for this thing. Well, let me preposition the answer to that thing or let me actually just go do it for you and just confirm that that was okay. That's the next stage. That's not command and response. And that is dramatically simplifying. Um, it's just a question of how far can that go and who is the kind of person who says, boy, I like this. Do it all for me. Right. There was a moment in time when the iPhone came out, that we had a world where where communications was probably pretty limited. I mean, it was phone calls and you went back to your office. I mean, it was it was a very staged type of thing. And then we went to a world where it was always on and how social sort of played out where you're always trying to pay attention to how you rate and what's happening and what your network's doing. And the pendulum swung from sort of a middle state to a very severe state. And I can feel the pendulum swinging back. I mean, from a cultural standpoint, the the emergence of yoga as a very common thing. Uh, there's a set of other pieces here that Piggy and others. It it seems like that we're trying to find a different swing in the pendulum here as a as a culture that's partially manifesting itself in technology. Well, it, I wouldn't even say partially. It's directly manifesting itself in technology. If you look at some of the, the big movers and shakers in the world of Silicon Valley, they're bringing mindfulness meditation moments to their conferences. Uh, you know, we've, we've had many of the people that we've collaborated with, like at LeWeb and such, for example, who had entire tracks right next to AI and wearables. There's a track on mindfulness. So, you know, the technology leaders are thinking about this and it's influencing the solutions they're bringing to us when they're developing their next, their next software solution, their next experience. Um, and, and it's just really a question of does this movement then lead them? And i got to be careful how I describe this because it could sound a little cultish, but does it lead them to lead some portion of our population into a different kind of 
lifestyle that is completely digitally taken care of. We've described it as a kind of cocoon. Yep. Or a silky embrace Mm -hmm. uh, where everything is safe and climate controlled and the, the intelligent agents in your life just run behind the scenes to keep that cocoon exactly in a homeostatic zone where you're happy. So, James, let's put some numbers against this. Can you talk about the scale or how many people are using intelligent agents today or in 2018? And what does that look like moving forward? Well, so when we talk about intelligent agents, uh, you know, the bigger version of that term includes anyone who's talking to a chat bot on a website or an app. Uh, We're getting into tens of millions of people who are doing that. But but really, the ones who are moving in the direction of this kind of intelligent agent cocooning effect Mm – uh, these are the people using Alexa. Google Home's not big enough yet to make Google Now a version of that. Siri has still not taken off, but still could if if Apple figures out an in-home experience that doesn't cost what their first product in this category is going to cost. Um, as all of these things figure out, for now, we're really talking about Alexa. And in the United States, we're talking about uh, 20 million of these devices that have been sold by the end of this year. We're actually forecasting it will be just over 20 million households that have one of these devices, but pr- primarily those will be um, Echo households, the Amazon Echo households. Um, and so, you know, start there. Mm-hmm. Who are these people? Well, we've got great data on who they are. They are the best online shoppers in the world. Why? Because they've been shopping on Amazon for years. They spend more on Amazon. They shop more categories uh, on Amazon than anyone else. They're, just to give you an example, um, the difference between a Prime member uh, who, sh- who shops on Amazon is once every six days is, is the average. When you've been a Prime member for three years, it goes down to once every five days. So, you know, that, that doesn't sound like a big difference, but percentage-wise, that's a big difference. And those are the people who are taking up Amazon Echo first. They already have an emotional connection to Amazon as a provider of lifestyle services. And the Echo platform just feels like the most natural extension of that. Um, So let's start with those 20 million households. Now, of those people, one of the things we know about technology adoption is that some people out there love to adopt technology for the sake of the technology. Mm -hmm. And there will be those people. Uh, You know, they're typically the first wave of people – they're not emotionally trying to hand their troubles off to Amazon. So think of it as wave two, maybe wave three. The people who are buying their first Echo, you know, in 2017 or, or into 2018. So maybe the last five, seven million of those people. Those are the people who are actually coming to Amazon, not because they want to try the latest thing or get the, uh, the approval of their peers because they're doing something cool. They're there really for life solutions. I make this convenient, make it easy. Uh, When we ask people the question, do you trust Amazon to be a provider of services that you value? I I can't remember the exact wording of it, but it it involves trust, value, and services. Um, First of all, Amazon scores very highly in general across the population. Um, But among those people who have been prime members for three years or people who who have an echo, it gets up to as high as 87% of those people trust. I mean, that's an emotional statement. I trust that Amazon is going to help. That's a fundamental trust in digital as well. It's it's, it's a company, but it's also I very very much trust the digital experiences, the recommendation engine, the AI pieces that are already in play. I mean, there's a deep level of embedded trust there. And they don't have to know the specifics of those things. They just have to know that it'll all work out in the end. And it's and Amazon is working for them, so thusly 
Alexa is working for me so I can trust that the, her preferences or her recommendations have some merit. There's some there's some goodness to it. And you, you just went to the pronoun, which is really important effect to point out. The moment when someone starts calling Alexa her and gives her— It's not that creepy movie thing. I was just me trying to move the conversation <laughs> forward. Well, it, and it happens very quickly. It happens very quickly. Uh, we, we are writing about it now. We're talking about Alexa actually personifying not just the brand that Amazon is trying to project, but actually personifying goodwill, good intentions. Well, Alexa's trying to do right by me. And, and people forgive Alexa when Alexa doesn't get it right, and they try again. I mean, that's, that's fundamental to any kind of emotional relationship. So this is an anthropomorphic experience. You, you start to think of this person doing these good things for you on Amazon's behalf. Yep. And it gives Amazon just a, a leg up on other brands in terms of that emotional connection that you're referring to, right? That trust, that thinking of it as a human and not just a brand or a company. That's way different than perhaps your relationship with, I don't know, Nike or others, even if you are a, a huge Nike fan. That's a very different experience. Yeah, Gene, you brought up the concept of we have to do a command and control, so we have to understand the lingua franca of all the different apps and other things. How mm -hmm. do we talk? So imagine being a brand, whether you're the retailer or the brand itself, trying to interpret how to work with Amazon's algorithms and how to influence Alexa because you're now set behind that firewall, essentially. That's a new skill. Hmm. And it's akin to sort of having search be the main main path and not understanding it. Mm -hmm. And really not having search opened up to me. It may not be opened up to me. That's a that's a heck of a of a wall for the brands to have to climb. There's, you know, as we've talked before um, in this podcast series about the power of emotion. Um, it's not just that they are rationally a step away from the customer. They are also emotionally a step away from the customer. And we were actually in a piece we're working on for early 2018 release. We've proposed the hashtag Alexa is my bestie will become kind <laughs> of a joke that people will ironically say, oh, my goodness, I'm so dependent on Alexa. Alexa is my bestie. But for many people, it will become true, mm -hmm. literally true, that if they look around their lives, and this is something that uh, – Internet pioneer um, Sherry Turkle has looked at is how many people do they trust in their lives and to what degree do they trust them? And you're going to see a certain segment of the population consider Alexa the most trustworthy uh, element in their lives. I say element, but person, really. Uh, and that's where we take that 20 million that we're talking about today and saying, okay, of them, there's some maybe fourth of them. So we're talking about 5 million people. Um, who are really looking for lifestyle solutions and want an emotional relationship with Amazon. Well, let's even say that just uh, a fifth of them, so 1% of total of the total population, actually wants to be completely freed of the complexity, this cocooning experience that we're talking about. It's not just that it's a 1% it's a sounds small, it's a million, um, it's a million point two households, um, but it's who they are. That matters. This is one of the reasons we're watching this. These are people who spend a lot of money. Right. My my follow up question is, what does that equate in dollars? You know, it's might one percent might be a small percentage. Yeah. Well, if you look at if you look at their outsized influence because their incomes are higher, their um, and the way they spend their money. I mean, these are the people who spend money on the biggest brands. You know, these are the Nike buyers, uh, and it's. $24 billion in spend that they're responsible for. Now, in a multi-trillion dollar economy, you say that's not a big deal, but it is. 
But it, it begins the march. I mean, it's your right. first. It's the first is, year. That's, is, that's huge for your first out of the gate. Yeah, $24 billion out of pop, so it tends to become a big number over time. Well, and especially because as the technology improves, more people start looking at this lifestyle that that certain neighbor has where she just seems so carefree and everything's taken care of and, wow, everything's just automatic and automagic, to use that term. Um, then, yes, you're going to say, I want that too. So there's a certain aspect of this that's viral um, that Amazon's perfectly positioned to to exploit. One of the considerations for this is that you see Amazon and the and the other platforms ultimately that sort of crack this code moving into other markets. So we sometimes think of this as strictly a retail conversation, but it's not. It is recasting banking. It's recasting insurance. It's recasting the consumption of entertainment to cable and telcos and others. I mean, hey, this, healthcare. This, uh, CVS just bought Aetna because of Amazon. And that kind of uh, follow-on effect is going to happen in, in all of these industries. I mean, it's a remarkable impact in a short period of time. But it is important to kind of restate that this is not strictly a sort of human being cocooning themselves because of emotion. This is recasting how industries work. I think that's really important because uh, sometimes when people that I've talked about this cocooning idea with, they, they say, oh, that's, that's the people who are afraid of the future. And so they're recoiling and you know, covering themselves up with a little blankie or something like that. But it's really not. These are power users of the future. They just are already aware of the fact that the future shouldn't require as much effort as the present. Um, and so, you know, we really do need to keep our eye on them um, because of the essentially everything Alexa learns to offer you in 2020, they will have learned from how they satisfied these people. It's a comment about expertise, not necessarily a comment about cocooning. This is people who have mastered it. The issue is the next line of wealth comes in mastering it. I mean, you're going to see a greater adoption at a faster clip based upon people that either have built wealth or will inherit wealth at a just a remarkable. Yeah, pace. I think it's also expertise plus expectation. Like, mm -hmm. I think that you would hit the nail on the head in terms of either the younger generations or these folks who are working with Alexa now and going to be spending $24 billion in 2018 expect not to have to work as hard on the technology's behalf. Mm-hmm. And that's why you're seeing this sort of shift. Yeah. You know, it, let's just go back in time. We've, we've been here before. Uh, we had the DOS versus Mac thing. DOS heads like me were like, oh, no, it's only, it only matters if you can get your hands behind it and work on it and, you know, expend all this effort. I didn't know there were DOS heads. Oh, you – oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. We were an exclusive club. We should have invited you, I guess. Uh, but – the it took 10 years for everyone to realize actually that is the right way to interact it should be just point and click and then we went from point and click to just touch and then now we're going to voice and every single time this kind of shift occurs it realigns the economy it, it, it changes who has the opportunity to offer things to customers and it changes who essentially dictates the way customers uh, interact in the future yeah there's a concept of hyper adoption yes that i've heard of james it. you've heard of it yeah <laughs> And it does strike me that hyperadoption is at one level a comment about I'm adopting a product, but also is adopting a behavior. And to your point, Jen, it's adopting an expectation. And expectation, new expectations can be adopted and become go from novel to normal in you know an extraordinary fast-paced time. A bizarrely short period now. I mean, honestly, this is my my doctoral background. My research in the early '90s was on 
the incredible amount of time it takes people to even become motivated to process whether that new thing is something they should do, then the amount of time it takes them to actually do it, then the amount of time it takes them to go from what we call adoption to internalization, where they were, you know, using that technology or using that device or product or service becomes something that they expect. As If you think about your own experience with GPS is probably a good one. You, you you heard someone else had this fancy GPS thing, but they were a hiker and that was for them and not for you. And then three years later, you saw someone had one in their car, but it was expensive and you had to keep it charged. I mean, it took years before everyone said, I guess I could be someone who has a GPS. Now you expect to walk out the door and if your GPS doesn't locate immediately, you're th- practically throwing your phone on the ground. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe that. Loud. Right, you had existential. I am lost. Yeah. <laughs> Did you watch me the other day? <laughs> <laughs> and then we, we had a camera. Uh, <laughs> We're selling it. <laughs> yeah. And that's that rate of change. That was over a decade that that occurred. And now we're seeing that from, oh, why does this, uh, why does someone want to have a conversational experience with me, whether it's on a chat bot or whether it's Alexa, to, oh, how come I can't just use my voice to ask for that? It, it is remarkable in qualitative interviews that I conduct with people who have some kind of voice experience, typically Alexa, but where, you know, especially the kitchen, hands are full or they're wet or you're doing things and you think, oh, I need to get that thing on my shopping list. And if you have to pull your phone out to do it, it just feels like you've been absolutely insulted by the universe. Um, that's how quickly we, we adapt to these new expectations. Yeah, it's a funny comment about sort of from novel to normal to intolerance. The thing about seeing customers or consumers move toward a, now an intolerance when they can't get what they want, uh, that tells us that their emotions are fully aligned with this new experience that they've embraced. And, and this is one of the areas that we think companies – still have a shot at. And let me explain this way. We've been talking about Alexa. Let's be clear. Any other company could still do this and in some other markets. Yeah, we're early days. Yeah, it's very early days. So, um, But we'll just use Alexa as an example. So Amazon steps in and says, we now have this really deep emotional relationship. We're elevating people's expectations to the point where when they don't get it, they're upset. So I guess you need to partner with us to reach your customer because we're the ones who are delivering it to them at this level. And that's probably true. We are actually telling brands, partner with Amazon and also partner outside of Amazon, but partner with Amazon. But remember that emotions are, there's not only one spot inside your brain where you can put a company in and feel good about it. You can also have an emotional relationship with the customer. It won't be the same relationship that Amazon or Alexa is able to achieve, but it, it you can get in there. Uh, you know, we've written about, you know, this personification of Alexa as a person who's doing your bidding, well, you can do that too. Your brand, and we've an obvious example is taking a brand like Progressive and saying Flow needs to be the person that you talk to whenever you call or chat with Progressive customer service. So you deepening the emotion, even if it's not as expansive an emotional connection as Amazon has, it's still an emotional connection. But Alexa has connected a dot between allowing the consumer to have their silence on their terms and still creating an emotional and commercial relationship with that consumer. So the advertising is tuned towards interruption and volume. And what, I mean, again, Amazon notwithstanding, the model to which they're pushing and the model to which appears to be doing quite well is the commentary of, I'm combining simplicity, a sense of you define your silence, 
yet a commercial relationship that is actually quite productive. And that's, that, that seems to be a new equation for me. That's a great way to look at it, and, and you can see why it's creating this new movement of dollars, ad dollars, from Google and Facebook toward Amazon. We just saw actually big announcements from, from major brands this week saying in the next year they're putting you know, tens of millions of dollars more into Amazon as an advertiser. Why? Because Amazon's relationship funnels the interruptions in a way that's appropriate to the context and the expectations and the emotional relationship that Amazon has with the customer. So it's going to put them in, a again, another really powerful place. But I, I still maintain that if you as Marriott have a relationship with that customer, an emotional connection to that customer, because for heaven's sake, they've slept in your bed. Let's think of it that way. Maybe not too much. <laughs> um, that That is an emotional relationship as well. And and don't forsake that. Don't give up on that and say, well, we can't. We can't be Alexa, so we can't have an emotional relationship. No, you can. You just have to figure out how you share those emotions with with Amazon. And also take a learning from what Amazon is either encouraging or solving, which is a greater part of our spending population wants things on their terms and wants simplicity on their terms. So this, these other brands engaging with Amazon, are, they should be learning a little bit about, well, that's a very, we, we, we've talked at Forrester a lot about the empowered customer. This puts shape to that. This puts a little bit of color and commentary about what does that mean in terms of, to your point, Jen, expectations, the pace of expectations, behaviors, what is tolerant, what's intolerant. I mean, this starts to put a stake in the ground about where you should be guiding your thinking about digital experiences and engagement. And how you can help your customer get to the outcome that they're looking to achieve, too. Like, that, I think, is so core to what Alexa is helping people do these days. I, I think, so in there, empowered customer, helping your customer get to the outcome that they want. Let's not forget, there's a whole bunch of moments in our lives where we're not sure what we want um, until someone shows us the thing that we want. I mean, you know. Steve Jobs was famous for being able to do this for entire segments of the population. And I think that part of the problem of saying empowered customers, everything's moving in this direction of empowerment, presumes that the customer has to continue wielding that power to tell everyone, give me this, give me this, do this for me. And it, it, we might get to the point where we describe it differently here at Forrester, where we, we're saying it's not so much the empowered customer as it is the enabled customer. They're enabled to, uh, yes, when they need to, wield that power. And then when they don't have to, step back and let the power wield itself. But important in, that in, in your point about enablement is this is, the, this is a central tenet of AI, which is AI begins to be a better human predictor, a better human interpreter, so that enablement is done on real time with real information, with real transactional history informing. I mean, that's, that's a central tenet of AI. Information about you. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the key. Obviously, we'll draw population inferences, but then we'll apply them to you and say, oh, this is an area where he wants this. This is an area where she wants that. And it'll preposition the solution before you even ask for it. And I know we've talked about that a lot at Forrester, but we keep talking about it as a business problem to solve, which it is. Which technologies do we use? How do we apply AI? How do we then you know, use the right channel to communicate our solution? All that. But the real fact is it's we haven't stopped to contemplate what that will mean as a user of those experiences. How will it reframe when we get up in the day with a to-do list if half of those items are gone 
what else gets put on our list? I don't want to be like one of those 1950s futurists who are like, and, you know, robots will do everything for us and we'll just wander around and play tennis. Uh, I don't think that will be the case. Humans seem to be really insistent on wanting to achieve things. But which things? It won't be the to-do list it'll, anymore. It'll be the to-be to list, the I don't know list. <laughs> but that's kind of the exciting thing. And, and the companies that enable you to focus on your to-be list instead of your to-do list, I think I just wrote a title of a book right there. Um, those are the companies that are in the best position in the future. To go back to Jen's point, and very much centered on lifestyle-oriented outcomes not distractions, interruptions, selling. It's lifestyle-oriented outcomes appears to be sort of to the core of this discussion. Yeah, these are not product decisions. These are lifestyle outcomes, exactly. James, in this podcast, we talked about a segment of our population representing about $24 billion of spend that's now in a cocoon. And that's novel. It's going to be normal. And then it's going to be massive. This changes the game. This is changes the game of how a brand perceives what a consumer is. And, it, and to your point on, the, on CX, it has the modeling, the experiences with a company and modeling lifestyle. So what does it mean to a brand trying to operate in, that, in this new world that's forming? So brands, to really be a part of this, you can stand by and watch it happen or you can choose to be a part of it. It will require that you connect to your customer on a level that is not merely about your product. They are not your policyholders. Maybe you even choose a word other than customer uh, to describe the relationship that you're trying to build with these people um, because it's going to have to be emotional because their other successful digital relationships are going to become more emotional. Therefore, your relationship with them also has to deliver at that level. And to do that, you have to really know who they are beyond the touch points. You have to know what they care about. And th- that means, yes, we're going to have to invest in technologies that help us uh, discern who they are and use artificial intelligence and machine learning, all of that. The technology is going to be very, very important. But the fundamental, uh, the fundamental change here is that we really will have the customer be in the driver's seat, not because they are wielding some kind of power in a power-hungry way, but because the systems and experiences that they are enveloped within or cocooned by will be naturally giving them more value and you have to join that offering. It's been a great ride, James. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thank you. It's prediction season. Download Forrester's 2018 predictions guide at for.com slash predictions. That's F-O-R-R dot com slash predictions. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.